back to There Are Three of Me. And we've been reading Pain of Memory, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine story by Gabrielle Lawson, one of my three pen names. Um, the others are Philippe de Lamatroc and Ina Coriel. Ina Coriel is probably the hardest to say, hardest to smell, spell, easiest to figure out. She only writes Lord of the Rings and hasn't written anything new for a number of years. Um, Philippe de Lamatroc handles Enterprise, Star Trek Enterprise, but other than that, TV is reserved for Gabrielle Lawson. Um, Philippe gets video game fanfiction and any romances. Um, they're not generally, I don't think romance is the main plot of any of my stories, but there are stories with romance in them. Enterprise being one of them, thus that's how that becomes Philippe. Also, torture for torture's sake. Philippe does that. Gabrielle does not stoop to those levels. Gabrielle will torture characters only in the sake of a plot. Philippe will find a plot to fit the torture. That's the difference. So <laughs> let's keep going with Gabrielle. I will eventually read um, a long story by Philippe. We have heard some short stories by Philippe, uh, but I will eventually read a long story, Alien Us. Alien Us is 30 chapters long. That will be an incredibly long season when I do it. Um, most of my seasons are much shorter than that, <laughs> but uh, Pain of Memory will not last a whole season. I might uh, tack another story on or find something else to talk about, about writing um, or writing fanfic in general. So we shall see, but uh, when I do decide to do Alien Us, uh, that's going to be a long one. They are long chapters and there are 30 of them. It took me 10 years to write that one. <laughs> doesn't take 10 years to read it though so that's good all right so let's get back into pain of memory in the last episode dr. Bashir finds that he can no longer read and he's having trouble finding his quarters or getting other places things are going downhill for him and as I said before I have not read this story since apparently 2009 so this is kind of like I'm a reader not the writer I know the big things that have happened but all the little details are like new to me and they snuck up on me last time and made me cry <laughs> so we'll see if uh i can't tell you what's at this point i can't tell you what's in chapter five and six we're just gonna have to figure it out ourselves as i read it and uh hopefully i won't cry well maybe hopefully i will that means the emotion is good hopefully you cry when you hear it <laughs> but it's, it does make for um, a little bit stressful reading because I try to keep an even tone. I try to um, be somewhat dramatic in the reading, but I don't want to be cry reading, <laughs> you know? I don't know how to do that and still sounds, uh, you know, intelligible. So hopefully that will not happen. Let's get started with part five. Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Pain of Memory, by Gabrielle Lawson. Part Five. Dr. Hensing sighed as he entered his quarters. They were tiny, more so than on any other starship he'd been posted to. Still, he was glad for the brightness of the walls. The gray of the station was not appealing to him. Besides, he liked being on a starship. At least then he was moving. The station was too stationary. He liked to be on the move. 
Either way, he was exhausted. Despite Bashir's present state, he had been a brilliant doctor, and that brilliance, artificial or not, meant that he had left extensive notes on just about everything, which Hensing was now responsible for reviewing in order to treat the large number of residents and transients on the station. There was, of course, a smaller population on the Defiant, but there were still plenty of files to go through for the ship. That and there were wounded from the skirmish earlier in the day. Between those two factors, he'd been busy since he stepped on board the little ship. Maybe the workload had finally rattled Bashir too much. He hadn't found anything physically wrong with the man. It was late now, nearly midnight. He'd gotten all of the patients stabilized for now and left word with the staff in sickbay to call him if they needed him. They seemed a com competent bunch. He supposed they had to be. Bashir had been chief medical officer of both, Star uh, both Deep Space Nine and the Defiant. One or the other had had to do without him at any given time. The staff missed Bashir, though, that was clear. Hensing had never liked stepping into a new post, especially if the previous doctor was well-liked. He preferred starting out fresh with his staff. One just can't compete with the predecessor in situations like this. The staff was polite enough, but Hensing sensed they were all hoping Bashir would be back someday. He hoped so, too. He wanted a starship. He had a thought that he shouldn't expect to, but he was hungry and he wasn't sure what to do now. Then the realization hit. Food was supposed to come from there, but he no longer knew how to operate it. He had lost more of his mind in the few hours he had slept, more knowledge gone, more abilities, more of Julian. He walked away from the table and moved to his desk, hoping that he still knew how to work his logs. He could ask the computer about that. Computer, he said, trying to get his voice to even out. I want to record my personal log. Log open, the computer said cooperatively. Julian sighed and tried to think how to begin. His name. He should give his name. Personal log, he said. Julian Bashir. He thought about adding his post, but then decided against it since Hensing now had his post. But he remembered you were supposed to say the date. Stardate. He didn't know the stardate. Stardates were complicated. Maybe the computer would help him again. Computer, what's the stardate? The stardate is 52238.4, the computer's female voice answered. Stardate 52238.4, Bashir repeated. Whatever is wrong with me has gotten worse. It appears to be progressing quickly, though we still don't know what it is. I think I do know, though. I think I said it before, but I'm not sure now. I think my enhancements are reversing themselves. I'm not sure how. I can't think like that anymore. I hope it's not really the answer. Maybe I'm being selfish. Maybe it's unfair. I didn't deserve the advantages I've been given. I don't deserve them now. I thought Jules Bashir was dead, but it seems he's coming back. It was his life after all. I was the one who stole it and tried to make it my own. I suppose it's some sort of justice, fate if one believes in such a thing. Julian Bashir will fade in place of Jules, who faded for Julian. He bent over to put his face in his hands. God, I hope not. There's still so much that Julian can do. I've contributed a lot, haven't I? Redeemed myself? Paid for my advantages? How many people have I saved from suffering? I found a vaccine for the blight, found antidotes for plagues and epidemics. I've tried to use what I have to help people. 
Given a full life, I could do more. There's a lot of potential in an enhanced mind. He heard a sound, but was unsure what it meant. End log, he said quickly. The noise came again. What is that? He asked no one in particular. He sighed when he realized it was something else he'd lost. It would have been easier, he muttered, muttered to himself, if I didn't know what I was losing. You take what you get, he told himself as he climbed up onto the top bunk when you're in Starfleet. Computer, lights out. Fifteen minutes later, the call came. Sick bay to Dr. Hensing. Hensing groaned but answered the call. Hensing here, what's the problem? Ensign Wagner, doctor, he's waking up. Hensing smiled. Wagner had been in a coma since his head injury four hours early. earlier. Good, he said. His vitals back up to normal? Yes, doctor, except blood pressure is a little low. How? He was going to ask how low, but a high-pitched whine stopped him. What's that? He asked aloud, momentarily forgetting the comm line was open. What's what, doctor? The nurse asked on the other end. It stopped, Hensing told her. Never mind. How low is Wagner's pressure? That was as far as he got. The word stuck in his throat when the first shock hit. His fingers clutched the edge, uh, edges of the mat thin mattress beneath him. The bunk lit up. He lit up. He could actually see the tendrils of electricity as they forked around him, but he couldn't call out for help. He couldn't even get a breath, though he tried. Doctor? The nurse's voice was now excited. Doctor? But Hensing didn't answer. The electricity receded, and he fell to the floor, unconscious. What happened? Sisko asked, looking down at the unconscious doctor. He couldn't help thinking that he was losing too many of them these days, and in such strange ways. I don't know, the nurse told him. I was talking to him over the comm system, updating him on one of the patients. He got distracted at one point, but I couldn't tell what it was. Then he seemed to choke. When he didn't answer, I sent a medical team to him. They found him unconscious on the floor. But besides bruises, supposedly from falling out of his bunk, I can't find anything wrong with him. No head trauma, no nothing. He shouldn't be unconscious. You tried stimulants? He suggested. She shook her head. Only mild ones, she said. No effect. I'm afraid to try anything stronger since we don't know what we're dealing with. Sisko placed his hands on the foot of the bio bed. He leaned over toward the nurse. His voice now had a, held a slightly conspiratorial tone. What would Bashir do? he asked. She smiled for a moment and then sighed. He's stable, nothing apparently wrong with him. I think Dr. Bashir would wait for him to wake up and ask him what happened. Sisko straightened and nodded. Fine, notify me as soon as he wakes up. 0830 hours, the computer intoned. You have one appointment. 0900 hours, Counselor Dax. Julian Bashir's eyes flew open, and the last images of the nightmare faded away. The lightning dreams had been gone for a while. The old nightmares were back again, sharing time with the new ones where Jules and Julian fought for control of his mind. As frightening as the old nightmares were, he almost welcomed them for their familiarity. Almost. He yawned, stretched his limbs, and then got out of bed. After his shower, he went to his closet. His first instinct was to grab his uniform, but then he remembered— he was off duty. Indefinitely. There was no reason to wear the uniform. He felt a slow pain in his stomach as he left it hanging there and opted for another suit. He got dressed and pinned his comm badge onto his jacket. Finished with his appearance, he headed out to the living room, which also served as a dining room. 
The replicator was against the right wall, just behind the table. He walked over to it, ready to order his breakfast, and then abruptly stopped. His stomach growled, but he couldn't satisfy it. He stared at the device on the wall as if he hadn't ever seen it before. There were many illuminated controls of different colors and shapes on it, and one large, gaping hole where he supposed food would come out. He stared at it, looking into the hole. He didn't see any food. "'What for, chief?' Nog asked. "'I'm not sure yet.' He waved to let Nog know the discussion was over, then he left engineering and returned to sickbay. It was early noon by then, and Hensing was up tending his patients. Still, O'Brien saw him cover a yawn as he waited for him to finish up with a bolian from security. Doctor, O'Brien said, can I speak with you for a moment? Are you sick? Hensing asked, dispensing with any pleasantries that might have served as a greeting. No, O'Brien admitted. It's about you. Hensing looked slightly annoyed, but he told the nurse to continue with the patient and drew aside with O'Brien. His eyes narrowed as he appraised the chief. What about me? he asked quietly. O'Brien didn't blame him for being suspicious. He tried to think of a good way to ease into this. He wasn't even sure what he was hoping to find out. Then he decided to start like Julian had. Have you ever had a dream? he asked, keeping his own voice just as quiet and hoping his face wasn't turning red. That feels real. I mean, really real. The suspicion left Hensing's face and worry took its place. Are you sure you're okay, chief? I'm fine, O'Brien insisted. Have you ever had a dream like that? Hensing wasn't convinced, but he played along. Well, yes, he answered. Everyone does it at some point. It's perfectly normal. I had one just last night, actually. What about? O'Brien already knew the answer, of course. He just wanted to see how Hensing would say it. He didn't say it. Why? He asked in return. Please, O'Brien pled. Just humor me. I think I'm on to something about what happened to you last night. That worked. Lightning, Hensing said, looking down. I think I was struck by it. I remember seeing electricity around me. I felt it. He looked up again. How does that help? O'Brien decided to take a chance and confide in the doctor as much as he knew so far. Your quarters used to belong to Dr. Bashir. Last time he was in them, he dreamt he was electrocuted. Said he could feel it. It was very real to him. Three nights in a row. He woke up late after each one. He was tired all day, complete ex completely exhausted. Sound familiar? Hensing was paying close attention now. His brows were drawn down close over his eyes. You think there's some sort of connection between my dream and whatever's happened to Dr. Bashir? O'Brien couldn't tell if it was a question or a statement. He just nodded. Maybe. But I'm going to find out. Hensing nodded, too, slowly. Let me know what you find, Chief. O'Brien nodded. I'd like to start with your quarters, sir. The doctor gave him permission to enter his quarters, so O'Brien headed there first. He felt like maybe he should tell someone, but that same nagging that made, had made him look into the lightning dream told him to keep this quiet for the moment. Right now, only he and Hensing knew something was up. He did a thorough sweep of the quarters, especially the bunks. He pulled out the computer panels and scanned behind each one. He was half expecting to find something there, maybe those parasitic things the Krajinsky changeling had used. But there was nothing there. Everything seemed normal, and that just wasn't normal enough for O'Brien. Too many things had gone wrong and still tested out normal recently. Bashir, Hensing, and now these quarters. He was determined to find something wrong somewhere to explain it all, all of it.
He returned to engineering. How are the internal sensors? He asked Nog. Couldn't be better if they were just installed. He called back from somewhere down the Jeffreys tube. I think you'll be satisfied, Chief. What are you looking for? I'll let you know as soon as I figure that out. Jake stopped in front of Bashir's door and checked the time. 08.45. He was early. Still, that wasn't likely a bad thing. Bashir tended to be a very punctual person. He touched the door chime and waited for an answer. There wasn't one. He tried again, and then, when there were, still wasn't an answer, he tried his comm badge. Jake Sisko to Dr. Bashir. The answer came quickly. Bashir here. I'm at the door, doctor, Jake told him. Is that what that sound was? Jake's eyebrow, eyebrows raised in surprise. How could the other doctors still say that Bashir was normal? He was changing so quickly. The door opened. Good morning, Bashir said, but with an expression that denied his words. He gestured with his hand that Jake should come inside. Is it time to leave? Not yet, Jake answered, smiling. He wanted to put Bashir at ease somehow, if only by being a friendly face he could count on. I'm a little early. Bashir bit his bottom lip, and Jake thought he might. He looked like he wanted to say something, but he wasn't sure if he should. Jake tried to think what it might be to save Bashir from having to ask. Thankfully, Bashir was dressed and shaved. Jake wasn't sure if he was ready for helping someone with those things. Bashir probably wouldn't be allowed to live on his own here on the station if he came to that anyway. He looked ready to go. Have you had breakfast? Jake asked. Yes, Bashir answered. We should probably just go now. Hensing began to sense the light on the other side of his eyelids. Morning. The computer must have turned on the lights for him. He was still tired. Stayed up too late, I guess, he thought. Tired or not, he had patience. He opened his eyes, expecting to see the ceiling of the little bunk just a few feet from his face. But that wasn't what he saw. The ceiling was several meters above him. He turned his head. Sick bay. How did he get in sick bay? A nurse, Baines was her name, came over. She nodded to one of the other nurses and then stood beside his bed. Good morning, doctor. How do you feel? What happened? He asked her, starting to sit up. You should probably stay down, doctor, she said, putting a hand on his chest. He was wearing a hospital gown. He was a patient. He did as she said and let his head fall back again on the pillow. It felt good. He was really tired. What happened? He repeated. We were hoping you could tell us that. Baines was checking the instrument displays above his head. Hensing turned his own head to try and get a look. It was an awkward position, but he couldn't see anything out of the ordinary. You were unconscious when we found you in your quarters. Unconscious? That didn't sound right. I went to sleep. That's all I remember. Maybe you fell out of the bunk? Baines suggested, smiling down at him. Hensing tried to remember. I don't remember falling. What do you remember? That was a new voice, but one he recognized. It was important to recognize your commanding officer's voice. Captain Sisko had just entered sickbay. Apparently that's what Baines had nodded to the other nurse about. I remember going to bed. It was midnight, I think, Hensing told him, trying to remember if he'd fallen out of his bunk. He yawned before he could catch himself. May I ask what time it is? It's 0846, Baines supplied. 0846? Haynes repeated in wonder. How had that happened? The computer was supposed to wake me at 0600. 
He yawned again. He couldn't help it. He was really tired. Maybe he had been unconscious. But I remember being asleep, he argued with himself and with Baines. I remember dreaming about... He hesitated, trying to catch the image from his dream before it faded. I dreamt about a storm. Lightning. He shuddered without thinking. It seemed so real. O'Brien decided to go by the sick bay on deck two before he headed down to engineering. The unusually long morning briefing had finally broken up when sickbay had reported the doctor was waking up. Sisko had left little information. It seemed the doctor had been found unconscious on the floor of his quarters during the night. Something about that hadn't set right with O'Brien, and he hoped he might run into more details by walking past sickbay. What he ran into was Captain Sisko, who was just leaving sickbay. O'Brien tried not to look embarrassed or guilty. "'How's he doing?' he asked quickly, trying to cover his unease with the show of concern for the new doctor. Sisko didn't either, no either didn't notice or didn't let on. "'Fine, as far as they can tell,' Sisko shrugged. "'He doesn't remember anything besides going to bed, said he dreamt about lightning and then woke up here.' He pointed his thumb at the door behind him. "'He seems to be fine, though, just tired. "'Let's try not to give him any new patients today, huh? "'Get the shields back up to par?' "'Lightning?' O'Brien asked. Something about that struck a chord. Oh, shields, he realized Sisko had given him an order. Sisko had noticed after all. Sickbay was not on the way to engineering. Of course, sir, I'll get right on it. Sisko nodded sharply and then moved off down the corridor, heading back to the bridge. O'Brien continued in the opposite direction to another turbo lift that would take him to engineering. He worked on the shields for the next two hours, but he had lightning on his mind. Then he remembered... Bashir had said something about lightning. No, it was electricity. He had dreamed about electricity and woke up late, three nights in a row. The lightning dream was after they'd returned to the station. Finishing up with the sensors, O'Brien decided to do a little investigating. The first part was easy. He called up Hensing's quarters on the computer. They were Julian's old quarters. Was it just a coincidence that two doctors using the same quarters would have the same dream? He thought about what Sisko said. Hensing was still tired. He'd been unconscious all night, but was still tired. Julian had been exhausted, like he hadn't had any sleep except for those dreams. I'm going to take a break, he called out to Nog, who today did not have helm duty. He was working on the sensors. Make sure the internal sensors are up to specs, he ordered for an afterthought. Or better than specs. I think we may need them. Bashir spent three hours with Esri before she called a break for lunch. Bashir was glad for the break, both because he was terribly hungry and because he simply didn't like talking to counselors, even one who was a friend. He had no more idea now what was wrong with him than he'd had before. Dax handed him a pad and suggested he take it to Dr. Garani in the morning. Bashir nodded and left before Esri could suggest an escort. One person. Jake had said to call him when he was finished with his appointment. Jake was one person. No one else needed to be concerned. He touched his comm badge. Bashir did Jake Sisko. He stood still and waited for an answer. Jake's reply was almost instantaneous. Right here. Esri's done with you? Yes, Julian answered. He wanted to ask for help getting home, but it was still hard to voice such things. I'll be right there. Okay, Bashir answered, but he felt disappointed. He couldn't tell Jake why. But he was starting to draw attention just standing there. What if Dax came out and found him there? Jake spoke again. 
Start walking left out of the office. I'll meet you on the way. Jake felt a smile cross his face. Jake knew without him saying anything. How had he gotten so wise? He thought a moment about which way was left, but he figured it out fairly quickly. He made sure his back was to Esri's door and turned left, slow, walking slowly so he wouldn't come to a cross corridor before Jake arrived. Jake caught up with him within five minutes, and they walked the rest of the way to Julian's quarters. He carried a box in his hands, but he didn't offer to tell what it was. Instead, Jake told Bashir about a new story he was starting. When they reached Bashir's quarters, Jake invited himself in. Bashir didn't say anything. He was curious about the box. He could smell something inside it. Jake set the box on the table. What did Ezri say? He asked. Bashir thought for a moment and then remembered the pad he had in his hand. More than I understood. He hesitated before handing the pad to Jake. This is private, he felt he needed to add. Of course, Jake said. If she wrote it in Counselor Mumbo Jumbo, I won't understand it either. Still, he read over the pad. His brows furrowed as Julian watched, but he didn't say anything as he read. Finally, he frowned. It doesn't say much, really. She couldn't find any, any psychological cause for what's happening. She thinks you're suffering from a lot of stress and that you keep things in too much. Anything beyond that is beyond me. But it doesn't help, Bashir concluded. Not now. No, Jake agreed. Should I call Dr. Garani and make another, another appointment? Julian went to the couch and fell onto it, forgetting about the box. Yes, please. Jake went to the computer, and Bashir just stared at the ceiling. But then he smelled that smell again. I thought I'd make some lunch, Jake said. I figured you had enough to worry about. The mess hall was crowded, but the crew had left one table for the captain to sit alone. Usually someone in the, on the senior staff would join him, but there was no one available this trip. Worf had the bridge, and O'Brien was busy in engineering. Dr. Hensings had still been busy in sickbay. It was a shame. Sisko thought they needed to get to know each other. As things stood now, it looked as if Bashir wouldn't be coming back. He'd gotten a call from the station. Both Dr. Garani and Dax had been unable to find a cause for his recent whatever it was. Sisko didn't even know what to call it, but it didn't seem to be getting any better. In fact, Telnori had reported that things were getting worse. The chatter in the room was loud. Some were laughing, telling stories. Others were talking in low voices, their heads bowed. Must be the war, Sisko decided. He took a drink of his Ractagino and wished there was someone across the table. He could stand some conversation. Well, it was only one night more. Tomorrow night he'd be back on the station and he'd have Cassidy for a dinner companion. O'Brien and Nog entered the mess hall together and Sisko waved them over. Have a seat, gentlemen. O'Brien stopped by the table but didn't sit down. He looked around the room with apprehension. He leaned down. Actually, sir, we were hoping to speak to you privately. Sisko didn't like that tone of voice, but he trusted it. He placed his napkin back on the table and rose from his seat. My quarters are close by. The three of them left the mess hall and its noise behind. Once inside Sisko's quarters, Nog began to scan the room with a tricorder. Sisko waited for an explanation, but neither of the engineers spoke. Chief? he asked. Just a minute, sir. O'Brien held him off. Nog? All clear, Nog reported. I'll set up a dampening field. He began working on the cont control console set in the wall. Just making sure no one's listening in, Captain, O'Brien explained. Sisko tried to be patient, but he didn't like the situation. What if O'Brien was a changeling? No, Nog would have to be one too, or there would still be a witness. He waited. Finally, Nog nodded that the field was up, and O'Brien began to talk. 
We have a saboteur on board. That certainly did explain the secrecy. Sisko crossed his arms and leaned against the bunks. How do you know? A hunch, O'Brien answered, but then he added, something you said this morning. A hunch was a little less dramatic than Sisko had hoped. If one was going to get worked up about a saboteur, one wants a little more solid, something a little more solid to go on. What was it that I said that gave you a hunch? You told me about Dr. Hensing. You think Hensing is a saboteur? O'Brien looked hurt. No, sir. I think he's been a victim of the saboteur, if you'll hear me out, Captain. Sorry, Chief, Sisko said. Maybe he was just hungry and it was making him more impatient than usual. Please continue. You said Hensing was tired after he was unconscious all night, O'Brien continued, and you said he'd dreamt about lightning. You, do you remember some weeks ago when Julian was so exhausted he nearly fell asleep in the morning briefing? What did this have to do with Bashir, Sisko wondered. Bashir had been officially relieved of duty, and he hadn't been on the Defiant for the better part of a month. But yes, Sisko did remember. Bashir wasn't one to fall asleep on duty. He nodded. He woke up late three days in a row, the chief said. Each time, he said he remembered dreaming about being electrocuted, said it was seemed very real to him. He hasn't been on the Defiant since, and no one has used his quarters since then either, except Hensing. And his first night in there, he dreams about getting hit by lightning. Sisko was getting it, but not how it led to sabotage. You think Bashir might have been unconscious too, only no one found him. He just woke up in the morning. O'Brien nodded. I checked out the quarters and didn't find anything. Then I really thought about the dreams. Maybe they weren't dreams at all. Maybe they really were hit by something. Now Nog joined in. We've spent the last seven hours going through energy readings from the last few weeks, but we found it. He held up a pad. Sisko took it and scrolled through the data there. He didn't see anything out of the ordinary. Don't see anything? O'Brien asked. Neither did we, at first, but it's there. Or more accurately, it's not there. He came to Sisko's side and pointed at a line of data. These are the readings from all systems the day before Julian's first electricity dream. He point, pointed to three other lines. And these are the readings for the next three nights. Sisko studied the data, hoping to see what O'Brien saw, but he just couldn't see it. The reading for the first day and the next three were only slightly different, less than 1% lower for each system. 1%. O'Brien nodded and smiled with a hint of admiration. Less than 1%, and that's across the board. You add all that up and you get a fair amount of energy. And look here. He pressed a control on the pad, and a new set of figures appeared. These are the readings for the light fixture above the top bunk in Julian's quarters. There were two figures for each set. One was energy coming into the fixture, and the other was energy expended by the fixture. Normal scans would only show output. It must have been some hunch for the chief to go to all this work. The output was normal and steady for the entire range of days. The energy input, however, was much higher for the four days O'Brien had highlighted. Sisko turned off the pad and turned to face O'Brien in full. Tear his quarters apart if you have to. Ensign! Nog drew himself to attention beside O'Brien. Sisko looked down at him. Take the helm. Set course for Starbase 137 under my authorization. Don't explain and don't tell anyone about this. Except for you, everyone goes about their duties as usual until we reach the Starbase. We are the only ones who know about this? He waited for confirmation nods. Still, he wanted to hear it. Understood? Nog was practically beaming. Understood. Yes, sir, O'Brien acknowledged.
Part 6 Jake stopped in the, by in the morning again, giving plenty of time for the trip to the infirmary. He had a hunch and decided to go with it. Have you had breakfast? He asked Bashir when the doctor opened the door. Bashir didn't answer right away. He just sighed and looked away toward the replicator. It's easy, isn't it? He said. The replicator? Jake decided not to answer in the affirmative. Bashir had apparently become unable to use the thing. Best not to make him feel worse about it. I can fix you something, he offered. We have time. Bashir slumped onto, into one of the chairs at the table. Jake was all he managed to say. Jake's smile faded. He didn't know what to say. What's it like? He asked quietly and then regretted it. He hadn't really expected an answer, but Bashir's words came out in a rush. I woke up this morning and I couldn't do things that I could do yesterday. And I knew it. What do you think it would be like? He said, not sounding angry, to wake up and find you couldn't read. You write stories. What if you couldn't spell the words anymore? Jake tried humor, smiling as he sat down. My dad swears I can't spell now. <laughs> to his surprise, it worked. Monsieur actually smiled and chuckled just a little. Monsieur decided he needed a sincere answer, though. I think I'd be depressed, he said. Monsieur nodded. I'm hungry, but I don't want to eat, so no, you don't have to fix me anything. Let's just go. Okay, Jake stood up. I have an idea, he said, he, a little unsure of whether it was a good idea or not. I could stay here. Bashir looked at him suspiciously. Why? Well, he'd already jumped in, so why not with both feet? You don't want to ask for help, he said, looking Bashir right in the eye. If I stay here, you won't have to. I'll be here, and you won't have to ask anyone else. I can make sure you get where you need to go. I can make sure, sure you have something to eat. I can even cook it. We Ciscos are good at that, you know. Bashir appeared to be considering it. The suspicion was gone. I don't know, Jake, you're... Messy? Jake finished for him. I won't be, I promise. It'll only be temporary anyway. Then you'll be fine and I'll go back to my quarters. I can sleep on the couch. You're too big for the couch, Bashir argued half-heartedly. Okay, then a cot. We'll stick it in a corner. I'll bring some pads for my writing, just one little corner. Jake held his hands out in front of him, almost pleading. To tell the truth, he wasn't sure why. Maybe he subconsciously still felt guilty about Algelon Prime. He'd run off after Bashir went down in an artillery attack. He'd left him. Maybe he felt he needed to make up for it. Maybe. Bashir bit his lip again, thinking. What's for lunch? He asked. Jake smiled. I'll surprise you, he said. Bashir wasn't smiling. Good. I'd probably just forget anyway. Colonel Kira rolled the baseball over in her hands. She was relieved to have it back again. It had been back for a while, but it was a relief just the same. It meant Cisco, the emissary, was coming back. She hadn't been so relieved a couple of months ago. It was good to have him back, though she couldn't help but feel there was a difference now. Jadzia was gone, Sisko was different, and Bashir was... She didn't know. She felt helpless, though. She didn't know what was wrong or what to say, so she hadn't said anything, and because of that, she felt guilty. A call came, and she put the ball aside. It was the First Minister. This is Kira, she answered. Put him through. Jake had insisted on lunch before the inspection of his quarters. Julian still wasn't sure about the new arrangements, but it appeared Jake's writing was beginning to give him more insight into people. 
He'd pegged Julian right on that morning. He didn't want to ask for help in things that were supposed to be easy, things like working the replicator. But Jake had made a point as well. He'd already asked Jake for help. He could limit his dependency to one person, one willing person from the looks of it. And the food was delicious. Are you going to cook every meal like this? He asked, smiling slightly. Slight smiles were all he could manage anymore. Well, Jake said, maybe not every meal. He stood up and started to clean off the table. See, not messy, he grinned. Bashir let out a chuckle at that. I can help, he said. He was a little confused, which he hated, but he just watched what Jake did and followed suit. He was almost surprised when the dishes disappeared in the replicator after Jake touched one of the controls. He tried not to show it, though. He was sure he knew about that yesterday. It was a big lunch, and it took a, a few minutes to clear everything away. What were you trying to read the other day? Jake asked as he put the last of the dishes away. A report, Bashir answered, but before that it was a book that book over by Kukalaka. Jake walked over to look. He smiled when he saw it. A Tale of Two Cities, he read. Good choice. I could read it to you. Bashir thought about that. I doubt I could make head, heads or tails of most of it. He picked the book up and held it in his hands. Well, maybe the last two pages. Deal, Jake said enthusiastically. You're stalling, Bashir said, and looked. Jake looked like he was caught off guard. Where's the cot? Jake made a play of looking guilty. He stared at his feet and gestured into the next room. Bedroom. Bashir took a deep breath and headed inside. Jake was just behind him, and they stopped just inside the door. Just one little corner, like we agreed. You won't even notice I'm there. Julian surveyed the damage. There really wasn't any. The cot did take up one corner near his closet, but that was all. There was a small shelf under the cot with clothes and pads on it. Jake was going to keep himself compact, it seemed, and Bashir did need him. All right, Bashir said, but the first time I find clothes on the floor, he let it trail off. He wasn't sure what kind of threat he could make. Jake was doing this as a favor, not as an obligation. You won't, he promised, still smiling. Then they went back into the living room and Jake picked up the book. Kira was at dinner when the call came. The Defiant wouldn't be returning as expected. They were docked at Starbase 137 until further notice. There was a problem with security, was all Admiral Ross would say. Kira had asked to speak to Cisco, but she'd been denied. She couldn't speak to anyone in the crew either. She didn't like it, but she didn't have any reason yet not to trust Admiral Ross. He assured her that it was only a temporary delay and that Cisco would call as soon as he was free to do so. Strangely, he also asked for an update on Bashir's condition. She wasn't sure why he'd ask, but he'd made her go through the strictest security precautions before sending Garani's latest information. Their first night as roommates had gone smoothly enough, that is, until around two in the morning. That's when Jake discovered that Dr. Bashir had nightmares. He wasn't sure exactly what it was that woke him up. Bashir hadn't said anything in his sleep. He'd made no sound at all, and besides twitching slightly, he hadn't moved from his original sleeping position, which was odd in itself. He sled, slept on his right side with one arm tucked near his head and on top of the other arm, which was almost as if he were cradling it. But the twitching had become more erratic and more violent, which is what caused Jake to try and wake him. He rolled himself off his cot, which was more uncomfortable than he had supposed, but not so bad that he'd complain, and walked over to Bashir's side. 
He reached out a, a hand out to gently touch Bashir's arm, planning to rock him slightly. At that same time, he whispered, Doctor? Bashir's eyes snapped open instantly. He bolted upright in the bed, but not until one strong hand clamped down hard on Jake's wrist. It startled Jake enough that he jumped back himself, but Bashir's grip was strong enough that Jake couldn't pull himself free. His feet slipped out from under him instead, and he fell to the floor. Bashir, luckily, came to full awareness rather quickly and released Jake's wrist. Jake, he said with a tone that implied surprise, anger, and relief all at the same time. He slumped back down on the bed. He was breathing heavy. Good reflexes, Jake muttered, sitting up. He rubbed at his wrist and started to, started to feel the blood rushing back into his fingers. You were having a nightmare. Bashir sighed and threw himself back down on the pillow. Is that all? he asked. I've learned to sleep through nightmares. If I didn't, I'd never get any sleep. Jake stood, feeling the crisis was now over. You mean you have nightmares all the time? Bashir nodded. Don't worry about it, he said, still standing, sounding a bit angry. And don't wake me up like that anymore. Okay, Jake agreed, choosing not to pursue it. He padded back to his cot and sat down. What did you dream about? He asked anyway, giving in to his curiosity. I remember things, Bashir answered. Let's leave it at that for now, shall we? He was more brusque at that time. Jake took it as a sign he didn't really want to talk about it. This time, he wisely kept his mouth shut. Okay, he said again. See you in the morning. He shut his eyes and prepared to fall back to asleep. The Defiant had been locked down as soon as she docked at Starbase 137. Sisko had requested only that DS-9 be informed of the delay in her return. His request was granted, and Admiral Ross had relayed the message. After that, each of the crew members were escorted by the Starbase's star security officers to individual soundproof holding cells or stripped crew, crew quarters. They were given no explanation, no time to gather their things. Many of them complained. Only Sisko, O'Brien, and Nog went quietly. By Sisko's orders, Security Chief Vendara questioned each of the 41 crew members individually. Starfleet officers from the Starbase kept a constant watch over the Defiance crew, relieving each other every three hours. One at a time, the crew, starting with Captain Sisko and the senior staff, were brought to the infirmary and subjected to three hours' worth of tests designed to prove or disprove their species. At the same time, the ship was undergoing a thorough search by Starbase security and engineering teams. Every chip, every relay, every wire and console was stripped out and searched by the engineers, with phaser-wielding security standing ready. Sisko watched the ship from the window in his new quarters. It was really the only place worthy of staring, and he was glad that it looked out on his ship. The room itself was bare. It contained only a bed. Every other amenity had been taken out to deny any opportunity for sabotage or escape to the infiltrator who had tampered with Bashir's, Hensing's, light fixture. He threw that last fraction of a thought away. It was Bashir's quarters when the light fixture was altered. Hensing had only been an accidental victim. For Bashir, it had been deliberate. But why? What was Bashir to the outside world? To Sisko, to the station's crew, he was something. He was starting to realize that now. He was their heart, their conscience. He was the voice of compassion, a reminder of what was right. But to everyone else? Bashir was arrogant, surely. They didn't know him. He was intelligent, yes because of his enhancements, of course, ill-gotten intelligence, unfair advantage, perhaps. 
He was a doctor, a lonely doctor at the far reaches of, the, of Federation territory, a doctor who volunteered for a post no one else wanted. Most of them probably didn't even know his name. So what made him so special to someone to sabotage his quarters? The door chime sounded. Cisco straightened up and faced the door at attention. Two security guards entered, one carrying a tray of food. There were no utensils. It was all finger food. Cisco nodded, satisfied. He knew he wasn't the saboteur, but he knew if he was getting such stark and yet not unfair or cruel treatment, then his crew was too, and perhaps the saboteur was among them. If he was, then he'd be found. Dinner was over and Jake was putting the dishes away. Julian Bashir watched him for a few minutes, trying to remember how the replicator made the dishes disappear. He could only remember that they did disappear, though. How they did was, inexplainable, was unexplainable. He turned away and leaned forward against the back of the sofa. The big Cardassian windows framed hundreds of tiny, shining stars. A, sh a ship flew by, maneuvering to dock. Klingon, Bashir remembered, and he wondered if it was Martok's ship. Where had it come from? Which one of those stars had it visited? The stars were very far away. He knew that. He remembered his teacher telling him that, his first teacher, just before he went away. Mr. Desher. He was always trying to find ways to help Julian understand things. And he never got angry when he didn't or couldn't. He just tried again. Julian smiled at the memory and at the stars so far away. What was it that Desher had said? The light he was seeing had stopped shining long before, something like that. What? Jake asked. Julian hadn't even realized he was sitting on the sofa, too. He was looking out the window, turning his head to try and see what had made Bashir smile. Julian watched him, but Jake didn't find it. He couldn't. He knew too much. He understood too much. For the first time since he felt his mind slipping away, Julian felt glad for it, for just this one thing. His smile broadened just a bit. The stars. Jake turned back to the window and stared hard. What about them? They're far away, Julian told him, knowing that Jake wouldn't quite understand. Yes, they are, Jake replied. Do you remember when you were little? Julian began, wanting Jake to understand now, like he did, when you looked out at the stars. I remember my mom telling me that's where my dad was. Did you try to see him? Jake smiled, too, remembering. Yeah, but the stars were too far away. The light was old, Julian told him. It took Jake a minute to translate that. Um, yeah, the light from the stars was old light. It's magic, Julian said, letting go of his smile. I remember being in school and learning about the stars, about light traveling. It took the magic away. That's why you couldn't see it. I don't understand it anymore. I can see the magic again. On the second day, a baryon beam swept the Defiant from stem to stern. Any changeling who might be able to hold its shape for more than 48 hours would not have been able to withstand the baryon sweep. Sisko knew it was happening, but all he could see from his window was the blackness of space. The ship had had to be moved for such a sweep. There, was no, there were no facilities for such at her previous docking port. The stars called to him, like friends, old friends. He'd seen them so many times from his bedroom window as a child, from the stoop outside the restaurant, from his porch on the house he'd shared with Jennifer, from his, two shuttle from his first shuttle ride to the moon, 
from his first tour of duty on his first training ship from the first time he looked out the large oval windows on Deep Space Nine. Those windows held more than the others. They held the wormhole, too, and the prophets within it. They held his destiny, full of joys and dangers, sadness and glory, all of it. This window only held distance. The stars were too small, too far away. They didn't twinkle with life the way the others did. This wasn't home. He sat down on the bed and then laid down. It had been several hours since his last meal and his last news of the universe beyond his stark quarters. He tried to force his mind into thinking about something. So many times he'd wished for more time, time to think things through, to ponder the big problems, to work out the little ones. But there had never been enough. Now, in a room by himself with no distractions besides the empty window, he had all the time in the world and nothing to occupy his mind. Bashir didn't sleep. The light was off and the bed was comfortable and Jake was already sleeping, but Bashir couldn't. Thoughts ran through his mind, most of them unbidden. They were memories more than thoughts, images more than anything else, snapshots of his life his childhood, the hospital on Adygean Prime, the girl dying on Invernia II while lightning flashed outside, his first day at the academy, his graduation from Starfleet Medical, every life he'd saved, every patient he'd lost, his first look at Deep Space Nine, his first time seeing the wormhole from the inside, the first time he saw the Defiant, the last time he'd worn his uniform. It was only days ago, but it felt like he'd lost his own skin. It was hanging in his closet, it was there every day for him to see as he picked out something else. Each day he understood less all the responsibilities behind it, and each day he missed it more. The ceiling was interesting. He'd not paid much attention to it before, but he did now. It wasn't flat like the ceiling at home when he was a boy, in his room at the academy, or in his quarters on the Defiant. This one had shapes, curves, and corners, more corners than the others. The color was different, too, even though it was dark. The other ceilings were always white. This one was dark and gray. It was like that in the infirmary, too. On the third day, security and engineering teams repeated their search, and the Defiant was declared clean. Also on the third day, the crew was declared clean. There had not been a changeling on board, but that still left a saboteur. Cisco ordered more questioning. It was Hensing who suggested more tests. A full DNA test, he told Vendara, had not been performed. Vendara had asked him if he knew the reason for the test. He said he didn't, but suspected there was foul play involved because of the incident with his quarters. Pressed for details of the incident, he was unable to give them. He'd been unconscious th that night and didn't remember anything beyond, beyond the lightning dream, which had not occurred once aboard the starbase. All this was reported back to Sisko, who sat patiently in his holding cell. He agreed to the DNA test and volunteered to be first. Once the last of the crew was tested, he was again removed from his cell and taken to the infirmary. Dr. Barton greeted him warmly. You're Joe Sisko's son, aren't you? He held out his hand. Sisko sensed progress in the investigation. Barton had been cold before, professional but unfeeling, not opening up and allowing no conversation, just as Sisko had ordered. Yes, he answered, taking the man's hand. You know him? Love the restaurant, Barton told him, leading Sisko to his office. The security guard stayed outside. No one makes jambalaya like Joe. That is, of course, unless he passed the recipe on to you. Sisko laughed and took the seat that Barton indicated. That he did. 
Well, maybe you'd oblige a few of us with a meal before you head back to Deep Space Nine. Barton handed a pad across his desk to Sisko. I think we found your little problem. Sisko looked at the pad. It contained the results from the DNA test of Lieutenant Jordan, a helm officer. The first set of patterns is his from his records upon admission to Starbase Academy, Barton explained. We thought it best to compare back as far as possible. The second set is from the test we ran here. Cisco studied the two sets of patterns, reconfiguring the pad to show them side by side. The pattern seemed to match perfectly. I don't see anything, Cisco stated, placing the pad back on the desk. And to be honest, my chief of operations did the same thing to me when he discovered the sabotage. I'd prefer you just tell me what you see in the results. Barton smiled and nodded. Some people like the satisfaction of solving it for themselves, he said. Didn't want you to, to deprive you of the opportunity. Look at line 4G. The patterns are not quite the same. They're very close, very close. But there's a slight genetic drift. A clone, Cisco asked, picking up the pad again. Bashir had said once that all clones showed a genetic drift. Jordan is a clone? Since when? I've requested all his DNA scan results from Starfleet Medical and Deep Space Nine. Barton pressed a few controls on his desk and swiveled a monitor around so the Cisco could see. He was the original thing when tested for typhus. That was the closest we could pinpoint it. That was months ago, Cisco said, sitting back. His stomach was beginning to hurt. Jordan was a good officer. He had put himself on the line and at considerable risk during that particular mission. Cisco had made sure he got a commendation for it. Makes me wonder where the real Jordan is. Barton leaned forward against his desk. His smile was gone. There's a war on. I think we can assume he's been killed. Cisco noted a shadow falling over the top of the desk. He's your officer. Cisco turned to see who had spoken. Sort of. I'm willing to turn the investigation over to you at this point, Vindara continued. He'll have to remain here, in custody, but you're welcome to question him. Sisko rubbed his hand over, hands over his eyes, feeling suddenly quite fatigued. He'd lost two good officers now in the span of only a few weeks, three if he counted back farther, and he hadn't lost them in battle. Did you manage to get anything out of him? he asked. He claims to know nothing of the sabotage, Vindara reported. He isn't aware that we're on to him. Sisko nodded and stood. Barton stood with him, and Sisko offered his hand. Thank you for all your help. He turned back to Vindara. I take it the rest of the crew can be released back to the Defiant? Of course, the security officer replied. I'll order it immediately. Julian watched Jake go and wished that he had stayed. Garrick was watching him from across the table. He could feel it, and he didn't think it felt good. He had hardly left his quarters the last few days, except to go to the infirmary or to talk to Esri Dax. Garrick was different altogether. Julian could deal with the other two as a patient. Garrick was his friend. Garrick smiled. I'm glad you came, doctor. Julian shook his head. He realized he was biting his lip and stopped. You shouldn't call me that. Why not? Because I'm not a doctor anymore, Julian answered. He felt it was obvious, but then Jake hadn't stopped calling him by that title either. Yes, you are, Garrick corrected just merely not a practicing one. He nodded his head toward Bashir's plate and utensils, neither of which had been touched. Are you going to eat? I, I, I'm not really hungry, 
Julian stammered. Are you intimidated by me, doctor? Garrick was still smiling, but Julian wasn't sure if it was teasing or being sincere. I can't talk to you, Bashir admitted. Not like before. That's all right, Garrick reassured him. We don't have to. We're just two friends having lunch. We don't have to debate anything. Debate? Julian couldn't place the word. It sounded intimidating. Friendly arguing, Garrick explained patiently. We don't have to do that. We can talk about other things. Like what? Julian asked. Garrick was being so nice about it, he was starting to feel less nervous. Like how you are doing, Garrick replied. You've been to the infirmary a lot. I hope that means progress. Has Dr. Garani been able to help you? Julian frowned and looked down at his food. Does it look like I've been helped? He shot back, then he sighed. I'm sorry, it's not your fault. It's not her fault either. I just don't want to be like this. I remember our lunches, Garrick. I remember deep arguing with you. I miss that, but I can't do it now. You're too clever and I'm not smart enough. You should have lunch with someone else. I don't have lunch with you just to debate, Garrick told him, reaching across the table to touch his hand. Monsieur tried to pull his hand back, but Garrick had a stronger grip. I have lunch with you because you're my friend, he continued, my only true friend, and I will return that friendship even if we sit here and never say a word. Put him through on a secured channel, Kira said. She turned the viewer on the desk around so it faced her and switched it on. The blackness there was immediately replaced by Captain Sisko's face. From Sisko's expression, she didn't expect good news. Good to see you, Captain, she offered, keeping her side of the conversation neutral for now. She had her own bad news to deliver. You too, Colonel, Sisko replied. I hope things are going well on the station. As well as can be expected, she replied, nodding. There's been no new activity around here since you left. The rest of the convoy escorts, escorts arrived back yesterday without incident. Glad to hear it. Sisko said, though he didn't look particularly glad. We have a problem, Colonel. Yes, we do, she thought. Yours first. She waited for him to continue. This is a secured channel, he asked. She nodded. Fine. It appears the Dominion has found a new way to infiltrate our crew. Kira sat up straighter, not having expected the news to be that bad. Sisko dipped his head in a slight nod, acknowledging her surprise. You should have Dr. Garani run DNA scans on the entire crew at her convenience. They're using clones. Clones? Kira repeated. As far as she knew, they were already using clones. Vorda were cloned and Jim and Dar were genetically engineered. But as yet, neither species had tried to infiltrate the Federation. Only changelings had done that. Sisko seemed to know what she was thinking. Human clones. I can't say much more for security reasons. I'll fill you in when I return. For now, just keep a tight lid on everything. Kara nodded, unsure if she should even bother the captain with her news. It only involved one man anyway, even if he was someone they cared about. How is Julian? Sisko asked, apparently putting aside the security problems. Dr. Garani has been running tests every day, she told him. It's not encouraging. Julian's IQ is dropping by at least 10 points every day. Jake has offered to stay with him. Has the doctor found anything physically wrong with him? Kira shook her head. No, can't find a thing. We don't have any explanation for it. I may, he said. I'll fill you in when I get back. Sisko out.
Kara watched the screen change to the Federation symbol and then switched it off. She wondered if what it was that Cisco wasn't telling her just yet. She understood about security, but it wasn't helping Julian any to keep it a secret. I'll be okay, Julian told him. A girl was waiting outside the door. Jake hadn't let her in. Julian was thankful for that. Not many people got through his door anymore. He didn't want them to come. Garani had sent him home that afternoon. No more tests. There were no more tests. I'll be back before dinner, Jake told him. I promise. You can call me if you get hungry. Go. Julian sat down on the couch and pretended to be comfortable. He even smiled. Just go. Jake didn't look completely convinced. Okay. He smiled, too, and opened the door. The girl, he recognized her, though he couldn't place her name, still outside, waved and nodded a smile to Julian before she and Jake disappeared. Julian waited for the door to close and then sighed. He was alone. It felt good. It wasn't that he didn't like Jake or didn't appreciate him. Without Jake, he probably would have starved. But... But what? He really didn't know. Maybe O'Brien was more right than he thought. Julian was used to keeping things to himself. He didn't share his misfortunes or fears with others. He kept them locked, locked inside. Not the smartest thing to do, but it was one of his oldest habits, older than the enhancements. Keep quiet. You can't be wrong if you don't say anything. If no one was around, there was no one to say anything to. It was easy logic, something he'd understood as a child and something he could still understand. But what now? He'd finished recording logs yesterday like he'd finished with taking tests today. There was nothing else to say. Nothing he could work out anyway. He felt like he'd missed so much. So much was lost and would stay lost now, like the blight. He was the only one working on a cure. Who would work on it now? Who would even think to read his notes and continue his work? Who would even think of it? Who would know about Trevian and Acoria and all the others who died or were dying of the blight every day? No one. No one would remember them. No one would think of them. No one would get to them anyway. He wasn't sure why, though. Not anymore. He remembered knowing before, like a shadow in his mind. But his mind was full of such shadows. They got in the way of the answers he wanted. But not of the memories, those he still had. So he remembered Acoria. He remembered the faith she'd had in him. He remembered her smile, her hair, her simple assurance. She trusted him. Her trust was misplaced. He had saved her son and the other new babies, but all the others would die. He had let them down. The girl had come by to invite Jake to play Domjot. Sometimes Jake played it by himself on one of the pads he always seemed to be carrying. He found one of them sitting on the coffee table. It was either a story, in which case he wouldn't be able to read it, or it was the game. He picked it up and pressed one of its controls. It lit up obediently, and there were no letters, but the game was no more accessible. He remembered playing it, but he didn't understand the rules. He set the pad back on the table and leaned back on in the couch. Computer, he said, hoping that was enough to make it listen. Play some Mozart, please. Specify peace, the computer intoned. Specify? he asked, feeling the word to be unfamiliar and complicated. Piece of what? Unable to comply. Bashir folded over and rested his head in his hands. Unable to comply. What did that mean? 
There was no music playing, so he reasoned it meant the computer wouldn't play Mozart. He rubbed his face and tried to convince himself that this wasn't so bad. There were worse things. He had bad memories, too. There was a time when he had wanted to be unable to think, when he had wanted to be mindless, when he would have preferred it to the conscious awareness of the horrors and pain around him. But it didn't help. His mind may have been going away, but his memories remained. He kept none of the advantages. Well, some interesting things came out in those two episodes. I did remember who the saboteur was. That's one of the big things. As a lot of those little details, like I forgot that uh, Bashir had that meeting with, you know, for lunch with Garrick. I almost got verklempt again at the end of that one. But for, fortunately, the next scene was pretty um, not emotional. So, <laughs> so that helped. Um, I think I did a good job on some of my original characters, come to think of it. Um, Dr. Hensing definitely has a flavor to him. He's a little more acerbic. He, you know, has things he likes and things he doesn't like. That's important, but he's not a bad doctor. It's important to make even lesser characters three-dimensional when you write. So don't let them be just cardboard cutouts. They don't work. You need full people. And then there's Dr. Barton come in at the end. I think we're going to see more of him because I peeked at the next file. Um, he had a definite flavor too, very different from Dr. Hensing, and yet he wasn't Dr. Bashir. So, you know, keeping them different. Now, I told you at the beginning in the author's notes that this story references the previous stories before it. Um, in these two episodes, or t these two parts, I did notice some references to Osvanchim, which I did read here on this podcast. So if you heard Osvanchim, you might have caught those references. One was in how Julian slept. I thought about this a lot when I wrote Osvanchim. He had this horribly broken hand, and yet he has to sleep with all these people around him on a crowded bunk. So how can he protect that hand? So he sleeps on his side with his right arm kind of out to the side and he places his left arm on the upper arm of his right, his left hand on the upper arm, and then folds his right arm over it. It doesn't touch it, but it does kind of create a barrier to if to somebody kicking him, for instance. If he kicks him, they'll hit his, his right forearm, not his left hand. So he got used to sleeping like that in Auschwitz. And he has nightmares. They're not just of the lightning or the things before the fighting with Jules and Julian. They're also the memories of the bad things that happened. And Auschwitz was a lot of bad things that happened. It wasn't the only bad things, but it was there. Now, another reference was Jordan. I don't know if you remember Jordan, but I talked about him in the commentary of Auschwitz too, because Jordan was that character who was just supposed to be a seat warmer 
Kara got up from the helm, somebody had to sit there. It was Jordan, but Jordan volunteered to go down to Auschwitz as a prisoner to look for Bashir, and he finds him. So Jordan uh, gets stuck uh, in a commando, has to go and work, and gets his arm broken, but he makes it back after seeing Bashir and tells them where Bashir is. So he kind of became a hero. And I didn't plan that when I wrote it. He just wouldn't settle for being just a cardboard cutout. He made sure he was somebody. And I love that about Jordan. And he appears, or rather a clone of him, appears in this story. So when Cisco said he was a good crew member and remembered the commendation and the mission, that was the mission, Auschwitz, okay? Um, we're going to find out more about the clone in the coming parts. This is an 11-part story, so we're a little bit more than halfway through it at this point. So I imagine it's just going to be 7, 8, one night, 8, 9, one night, 10, and 11, and the epilogue, and another night. So three more episodes, and we'll have this story done. It is not as long as my other stories. You notice the chapters are shorter. They don't last as long. The scenes don't last as long. So it is, it is just a shorter story, but it's not a short story. So it's a novella. It's in between. Um, that was the way it was meant to be. It's not meant to be a novel. It's not meant to be a short story. So things move fairly fast in it. We've seen quite a decline in Bashir as he goes, and he's down to the point that he can't even ask for Mozart to play because the computer needs a little bit more information than that, and he doesn't understand what it's asking. That's kind of sad, isn't it? I would love to hear Mozart if I was in that situation. Um, I'd love to hear Mozart anyway. Heck, my ringtone is Mozart. <laughs> I like Mozart. But anyway, I think that's enough commentary for now. So if you like this story or want to ask a question about the story or writing or any of my other stories that you've heard on here, go ahead and email me, inhildy at gmail.com. That's I-N-H-E-I-L-D-I at gmail.com. You can also tweet me at at inhildi, I-N-H-E-I-L-D-I. I do have email addresses for Philippe and for Ina Coriel. I just think it's a lot easier if we just stick with this one email address. There is only one Twitter handle for my writing, so it just makes it either easier to stick everything with inhildi. Okay? I hope to be back tomorrow with the next two parts, and I look forward to reading them to you. See you soon.